Welcome to the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak-and-dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you up to speed on all things Wisconsin in 2018. From our palatial offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer, and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get, or so we hope, from Team MacGyver. And now, fueled by vigorous, generally civil debates over the new Star Wars, it's Team MacGyver. My name is Cookie Policy and or Matt Kittle. I'm Bill Osmolsky, MacGyver News Director, and there is no room for civility when it comes to critiquing the new Star Wars films. Paula <laughs> Lasowski, Research Associate. It's a good movie, guys. It's a millennial old guy divide. That's what we've <laughs> determined here at uh, Team MacGyver. I'm Chris Rochester, and I have not seen it, so I won't weigh in on that one. I'm Communications Director. Here to remind you that if it's at the gym, at home, or during a boring conference call at work, we hope you're enjoying the MacGyver Report podcast wherever you like to listen. And if you are, please sign up for regular podcast updates on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please be sure to share with your favorite liberals and change their lives forever. Mm. And this is the only place you're going to get real-time coverage of Wisconsin's shame. That is, of course, the John Doe scandal, where the old Government Accountability Board played a central role. Two former members of the GAB are now in charge of the Ethics Commission and the Elections Commission. The Senate says it will not confirm their appointments. Matt, you're our point man on this. Who are these two staffers and what is the story? Well, as we reported at MacGyver News Service this week, the Michael Haas, Brian Bell defense tour is underway. Michael Haas, of course, is the interim. And it's important to note the interim administrator of the Elections Commission. Brian Bell is the interim administrator of the Ethics Commission. Put them together, you get whatever I just said. <laughs> Elections and ethics, they replaced the Government Accountability Board, the old GAB, which was disbanded in uh, 2016. What we now know was incredibly abusive, unconstitutional behavior in their role in the infamous John Doe investigation. A secret sinister probe into dozens of conservative groups, scores of conservatives, and the campaign of Governor Scott Walker during the uh, recall elections of 2011 and 12. You know, real quick on that, they continue to characterize that investigation as a criminal investigation, but it has become more and more clear this was domestic surveillance against private citizens who are exercising their free speech and association. Yeah, what the what the state Supreme Court said in 2015, or at least hinted at, and what we have figured out over the waning years, particularly last month in the bombshell report by Attorney General Brad Schimmel, is that the real criminal activity seems to have occurred among the government bureaucrats and prosecutors and agents of the John Doe. That's where the criminality occurred, and now what we have is we have the Attorney General with permission to expand his original investigation into the John Doe leaks to investigate the investigators. We have the State Senate 
saying we need to expand that legis uh, expand that investigation. And we have the state Senate, the Republican-controlled state Senate, saying they don't have any more faith in Brian Bell and Michael Haas, who formerly worked at the Government Accountability Board. And it looks like coming up next week at a confirmation vote on these two guys, whether they will become the full-time or lose the interim name of it in, in the administrator uh, uh, calling, uh, it, it appears that they will not be confirmed for that position, that they will be sent packing. And of course, over the last couple of weeks now, we've had the apologist and the defenders of Michael Haas and Brian Bell, and now including Michael Haas and Brian Bell, going on the tour to news organizations, and, and quite frankly, news organizations in this state that have been less than reviewing this story with a critical eye about the bureaucrats involved. And so they're telling their story about how they were not involved. And in a piece that you'll find only at MacGyver, um, we have a headline this week at MacGyverInstitute.com, John Doe Agent's Defense Falters Amid Email Evidence. I want to point this particular section out because I think it's incredibly important to the dialogue, and I hope that we pick up more traction on this point. Now, everybody can say whatever they want and defend uh, someone or defend himself, however it is, but one thing you can't get away from is the evidence. And the evidence from the emails that were the emails obtained and the other internal communications obtained through lawsuits against the Government Accountability Board disprove something that Michael Haas has said. He told Wisconsin Public Television last week, nobody can point to any decision or action of myself or the GAB or the current Elections Commission that's been based on partisan motives. Here are just three examples of many that plenty of people, including this news organization, have pointed to as evidence of partisan actions or decisions at the GAB. Haas's colleague at the GAB, Shane Falk, he, the keeper of uh, opposition research, as we have talked about, as you'll find in the Attorney General's report, the staff attorney who helped lead the agency's activities in the John Doe investigation wrote the following email to Special Prosecutor Francis Schmitz on November 27, 2013, nearly two months after John Doe investigators raided the homes of innocent people before dawn. This is what Falk wrote. Remember, in brief, this was a bastardization of politics and our state is being run by corporations and billionaires. Falk was referring to legal conservative issue advocacy in the state of Wisconsin. This isn't democracy, he went on to write. This isn't democracy to say the least, but due to how they do this dark money, the populace never knows. Interesting to note, folks, that Falk, who was an agent in a secret investigation, wrote about what he saw as a lack of transparency in the campaign finance system on a secret Gmail account. So you're, you're saying there's black and white evidence that what Haas is claiming and his apologists are claiming that he has nothing to do with agenda is not true. Absolutely. So how come, why are we the only organization pointing that out? Because the other information delivered by Michael Haas and the apologist of the John Doe don't fit into the narrative. 
that was brought out during the campaign of 2014 and has been brought out ever since. That there's some sort of criminal scheme going on between conservative groups and Scott Walker. They have yet to lose that. They have yet to identify that victims indeed can be conservatives and people who are politically active in right of center groups. It doesn't fit their victim or their idea of who a victim is. But I'll tell you what, when you have people who have their homes raided at the before the break of dawn by armed law enforcement officials, and you have children who are awakened by armed law enforcement officials, and who are walking off with their private property. Walking off with their private property, and these same people are told that if they say anything to anybody about what happened at their home by these law enforcement officials, they could go to jail. Now that's a victim to me, especially when you have multiple courts saying there was no probable cause to do any of this stuff, when you have the state Supreme Court saying that a perfect storm of wrongs was committed against people who were guilty of no wrongdoing. Well, that's, that's scary enough because you have the, the imagery of the police raiding the house and sequestering the family in the family room and, and, and standing guard by them. But, you know, even more concerning to me, or just as concerning, is the fact that so many people's emails and communications got swept up without them even knowing it yes. digitally. And now you have these guys trying to save their jobs and their commissions trying to save the jobs of these two guys. And while admittedly Haas's involvement in the John Doe is very clear, he was very active, where Bell was, was not, both of these guys at the GAB could have stood up at any time, and I'd like to hear them, I'd like to hear them say this, stood up at any time and said, this is wrong! What we're doing to these people, what we're doing to these lives, it's wrong, we have to stop. There is no email saying that. Not only that, we have Haas doubling down in recent weeks saying nothing the GAB did was wrong. You know what's going to be the most entertaining part about this is when Senator Leo Vukmir gets to speak on this subject on the floor. <laughs> Indeed, of course, Leo Vukmir, Senator Leo Vukmir found out recently in the Attorney General's report that she had her life spied upon, that they seized at least 150 very private emails between Leo Vukmir and her daughter. Including That's health, 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 con health <laughs> conversations, and that was in opposition research, the opposition research folder too. This whatever these folks have to say in defense, they still have not been able to explain. And I, I didn't get to all of them, we don't have time for all yeah. of them, but read the story at MacGyverInstitute.com. It lays out just how directly involved the GAB was in this and the partisan motives are exposed. Well, one thing for sure is that this is gonna reach a boiling point <clears throat> in the Senate pretty quick. It definitely is, it definitely is. And, and while that's playing out, don't forget the end of the world continues. Of it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> oh, Original REM track there. Uh, <laughs> of course, I mean tax cut Armageddon. And Ola, you have been following these developments. So what is the latest tally? That's right. Thank you, Billy. We are on Armageddon Watch 2018. I'm talking, of course, about tax cuts. Quick update from last week. We're now looking at 2 million Americans seeing wage bonuses thanks to these rate cuts. In the single biggest announcement from any employer yet, last week Walmart, which is of course the country's biggest private employer, announced that it would raise its starting pay to $11 an hour, up from the current nine. Now, if you're following along at home, that is about a 22% raise. The horror. Certainly nothing to <laughs> sneeze at. Um, more than a million employees will get that raise, as well as bonuses of up to $1,000. 
Uh, that's about $700 million in increased spending on wages just for those two things. Now, on top of that, Walmart is also expanding parental and maternity leave policies, extending that benefit to hourly employees, and if an employee chooses to adopt, Walmart will provide them with $5,000 in adoption benefits per child. It really oh, wow. is remarkable. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, listen, this is what we've been saying all along. Lower taxes, not bigger government, is how we get to more prosperity for everyone. And uh, as far as the fight for 15, <laughs> you can take this a couple different ways. Now, the first is that if you really want to fight for 15, you need to start advocating for cutting taxes across the board. And that is something that will get businesses to raise their own minimum wages for their employees. And we, we have evidence to suggest that. That's right. And we might suggest, for example, a 15% corporate tax. That is another <laughs> yeah. fight for 15 we are all for. Now, now, Olaf, isn't Walmart funding these $11 an hour minimum wage by just firing all of their Sam's Club employees? Yes, so the <laughs> other part of the news from that very same day, skeptics will point to another announcement uh, made by Walmart. Uh, that they will close about 63 Sam's Club stores. Uh, Sam's Club, of course, owned by Walmart, so they're not competitors, but guess who is a competitor to Sam's Club? Costco and Amazon. Oh, I wonder if those companies have been doing pretty well for themselves recently. Mm, yeah. So, and good for them, by the way. Right. So, you know, as for Sam's Club stores closing, that is about 10,000 employees. Um, who will lose their jobs compared to the million plus getting raises from Walmart. So one, drawing any sort of equivalency here is really missing the point. And on top of that, you know, Sam's Club did say that a dozen or so of those stores would be converted into fulfillment centers to help meet their demand for online shopping. So I guess what I would say is a word of caution to Democrats who were sort of gleefully trying to immediately turn around and easily just continue this rhetoric that Walmart and everything they do is evil. Not so fast, guys. There's a lot of things at play here, you know. Maybe it could be that Walmart and Sam's Club are now shifting their attention to e-commerce, right. taking a hint from Amazon, Costco, which apparently just updated its app this year, and that was part of the incredible growth they saw this last year, you know. So it's just this this gleefulness of... of uh, rooting for them to fail, I guess. Yeah, it's I, pretty ugly. That's, you, you have put your finger on the broader story here, and I think even resonatingly the more significant story. Yeah, it's it's big. We're, we're already seeing the impacts of tax reform, real tax reform, the first of its kind in 30 years. We're seeing what tax cuts will do to spur economic development in this country. Right. But the broader issue is you have an entire party. You have the left gleefully, I think you have said it best, that's, that is the descriptor, gleefully cheering against America and the right. American economy, gleefully cheering about uh, people losing their jobs. Now they're, they're trying to frame it in the way, see, we told you, Walmart's now not so good, they're closing 63 Sam's Club. Of course, there's no context that every year about this time, we have businesses all over the country readjusting what they have to do because that's business. Right. That's how this stuff is done. It's, is it unfortunate that people will lose their jobs? Absolutely it is. Yeah. But it's not some, some sort of thing where they're announcing that they're going to you know, give bonuses and raise pay, and to do that, they're going to have to close 63 Sam's Clubs, and that's the kind of narrative that we've heard out there. Right. But more than anything, 
It's that there is such a hatred for Donald Trump, for the Republican Party, for the Republicans in Congress, and for those who would dare to, to, uh, to pass legislation that allows people to keep more of their money that that is somehow Armageddon. They are so in, in, in tune with this hatred, so connected to this hatred that they, you know, they're willing to root against America. This is how ideological they are. They, you know, conservatives are getting the news that companies like Walmart are giving raises and bonuses, increasing the retirement co uh, contributions, all kinds of other things like that, and they're happy about that. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, you have the liberals who are sad and angry that that's happening, but hey, they get the the, uh, the side B of the press release that oh we're gonna lay out, we're gonna close some stores and lay people off, and that's what makes them happy because it gives them an opportunity to message that and to come up with something to say against tax cuts. How miserable! How what a miserable <laughs> what? I know, right? But I, you know, there's another um, point that Ola made that that kind of just reminds me of you know the old story about the Pony Express, you know. Walmart is converting some of their Sam's Clubs into e-fulfillment centers. They're embracing the next generation of technology in the retail business. How many, you know, how many people, if today's liberals or liberal mindset was running the show back in, you know, the 1880s, we'd still have the Pony Express because the uh, the Telegraph was coming in to it compete with them. It'd be heavily subsidized too. It'd be a heavily subsidized <laughs> more and more over the years. You know, you'd still have the uh, the kerosene lamp business would be subsidized and propped up, and Thomas Edison would have been drummed out of town. No, wouldn't because the king liberal, Jeff Bezos of Amazon <laughs> and of Wash the Washington Post, is more than glad Wait to recognize the trends of e-commerce <laughs> and to benefit and profit by it. This is the problem that we have. I, I, Ro rooting against America when it fits their purposes and not recognizing in their own that business indeed has right. to be um, uh, taken care of. And those employees from Sam's Club will find a place to land. That's right. Final note on this, uh, at least one wholesale club that operates in the same market as Sam's Club and Costco called BJ's Wholesale Club, operates mostly on the eastern seaboard, released an immediate statement seemingly to now former Sam's Club workers saying, yes, we're hiring. And that's what competition looks like, folks. Yeah. So it looks like they're going to land on their feet. Yeah. Good <laughs> news. Very good news. Thank you, Ola. This is the MacGyver News Minute. Here's Matt Kittle. Here's how out of control the political correctness police have gotten at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A student complained that a white homeless man who yelled racist at the student union was himself engaging in racism because he was hiding behind his white privilege. That's just one of the many acts of pettiness and tattletaling found in the liberal university's hate and bias incident reports. It's a shame, really, because mixed in with the old high school grudges and ignorant tirades on racially charged names of the pizza slice of the day are real, actual incidents of bias, discrimination, and racism. Unfortunately, the university's nebulous definitions dilute the true incidents, creating an exaggerated picture of hate and bias on campus, a MacGyver Institute investigation is found. Do hate and bias exist at the university? Yes, just not to the extent some would have you believe. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. Well, we are certainly seeing this from campuses all across the country, and Bill, you did the heavy lifting, the investigative work on this. The problem here is 
the question that it raises, what is being done about this? What is really happening? Well, and, you know, we, we, we talk about in the story how the university collects all these bias reports. In some cases, they really do identify true case or what seem to be true cases of yes. hate and bias. Um, but the solution is always um, hold workshops for student groups. So, you know, student government and organizations are essentially already on the same page as you, so you're preaching the choir, then putting out more flyers about how to file bias reports. That really does not get to the root causes of these problems. No, and the issue is ultimately we do have uh, incidents on our campuses and elsewhere uh, in, in our institutions and, and in our society of racism, of bias, of hatred. You reported on it, real true assaults, but when we have uh, complaints of high school grudges and concerns about the pizza slice of the day, you know, and these are with carried within the whole database as legitimate complaints, it dilutes the real abuses that are going on. Well, and the university is trying to damage control over this. They claim that, oh, they identify the, the frivolous complaints and filter those out. No, they don't. <laughs> we've, we've seen the reports with all the numbers of the number of right. reports filed, how many of these reports are racist. They don't filter anything out. If, uh, if the student says it's a racist incident, they take that at face value. So this is, I mean, our investigation is going to continue. This wasn't a, you know, one and done type of story. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, every semester there's a new batch of reports. The university compiles them all, draws the statistics. Those get used by liberal groups that then, you know, build talking points based off of them. I mean, this is a great bureaucratic process. It doesn't, it identifies a problem, but it does nothing to solve it. But on identifying the problem, they justify their own ability to continue identifying yes. it. When you say liberal groups, are you talking about the media? <laughs> oh, don't, don't pay me in that corner. No, but, no. Um, bum. Uh, but, you but, but you're right, the, me, but the, the mainstream media has reported on this like, oh, this is a huge problem. Look at the numbers well, spiking. You see that aggregate number and you yeah. think, wow, this is really a growing problem. But that's why what Bill, the report Bill did is so important, is you actually do the heavy lifting, look into what's actually being reported, you realize, yeah, there are some serious incidents happening here. But a lot of these numbers, it's, just, it's, it's popcorn. Well, it's, it's full of air. It's that's right. Air. I mean, I, I, I characterize these as phony reports. If you get into an argument with your roommate over rent and you say, well, this is obviously a case of racism, well, that is a phony report. Right. The university takes that at face value, compiles it into their statistics. The media takes that at face value. And also, these reports are being rolled up into a national database right now, which is also taking that at face value, and this is all phony statistics. So this is, this is a national thing, too. We're going to see, and we're, we see reports of, oh, you know, racism on campuses through the roof. And the ProPublica database, like you're talking about, is part of the effort to advance that narrative. And it seems an awful lot like a concerted effort by the left well, for just, some reason. Let's just hope that other members of the media are responsible and do the work that Bill did and that MacGyver News Service does. But if they don't, we will continue to do it. All right, all right. now that you got me all riled up, why, okay. don't, we, why don't we shift <laughs> gears to some, uh, a topic that, you know, a little bit more calming topic. The state legislature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm feeling rather pacific now. Yes. <laughs> so they really hit the ground running this year. 
and uh, one of their top priorities, well, they've got lots of top priorities, but <laughs> in, that, in that grouping, we've got healthcare reform, and Chris, you've been following the rise of direct primary care. Now, not everybody's gonna know what direct primary care is, so first of all, could you explain what that is? then tell us why lawmakers are so interested in it. Well, this is uh, it's really exciting. It sounds like uh, that only a true nerd could say that, but uh, direct primary care is kind of what it sounds like if you just break it down into, uh, we all know what primary care is. Primary care, uh, whether, you know, your primary care physician, your general doctor, your family doctor, whatever you want to call it, that's the first line of medical care. That's where you go to get most of your your tests, your exams. If you if you have a kid who's got a sore throat, you go to the primary care doctor for the most part. Uh, and this is it's direct, so you pay them directly. You don't pay an insurance uh, company, and the insurance company pays the doctor. You you uh, it's been so you pay them cash uh, in a format that's described by some people as similar to a gym membership or a Netflix subscription. Uh, and you pay for a set menu of services and you basically get virtually unlimited access to your doctor whenever you need it. Uh, so it's it has a lot of upsides in that it lowers costs, the cost of healthcare, by making the prices transparent and introducing pressure to lower prices by shopping around. Uh, and that way it's gonna save taxpayer money and you get that old fashioned doctor-patient relationship that you don't really have anymore with the giant hospitals and the insurance bureaucracy. Yeah, so. I was going to say, didn't Ward and June Cleaver send the beef and Wally <laughs> do the same sort of thing, just pay directly? Uh, th this is, you know, we, we think about this as, as, as something new, and in some ways it really is. It's, it is innovative, but, it, it, but it's innovative in one way that it, it, it goes back in time to when we actually had a direct doctor-patient relationship. And you knew what you were getting, you knew what you, what you, you were charging. Getting. So, right. you know, a note on the, on the bill itself, uh, the bill itself introduces a pilot program uh, for direct, it authorizes direct primary care in the state's medical assistance program, AKA Medicaid, AKA Badger Care. So the state would fund these direct primary care uh, memberships, if you want to call them that, uh, and Medicaid recipients would get most of their care where it's supposed to be gotten at the primary care doctor instead of at places like the ER, which are much more expensive. All right, um, labor reform is another favorite area for conservative lawmakers, and the latest uniformity bill shows there's always more work that can be done. And Matt, why should local taxpayers care about this one? Consistency is a huge issue for businesses, and it's a huge issue, whether we know it or not, for employees. I attended a hearing, a lengthy hearing, last week at the Capitol, um, and it was all about legislation, a suite of proposals within a Senate bill that basically gets at eliminating the patchwork of local employment regulations and saying that the state in certain areas of employment law is the final authority. But when you have places like Milwaukee trying to push living wages and project labor agreements or within those labor agreements certain conditions in order to get a job, a construction job for instance, a government construction job, or various ideas about what truly is discrimination. The city of Madison, for instance, has a much more stringent idea than federal and state law. Well, what this bill says is, no, you can't be more stringent. You can't have 
different laws in these certain areas than the state. And the argument is, is that it's very costly for, you know, we, we don't just do business in our hometowns anymore. We do business across county lines, across state lines, across global lines. And if you have all of these different regulations that are truly very costly, you get into Milwaukee, which has a different idea of what business should be responsible for than, than say, Waukesha County, which is right, you know, across the, the border. Um, you know, it, it gets confusing, it gets expensive, and it's unnecessary. It's, it's unnecessary. Now, of course, those who are opposed to this legislation say that, you know, this will cause all kinds of problems, but their biggest concern here is the concept of home rule. Home rule, established in the state of Wisconsin's Constitution many, many years ago, says that basically it should be up to the local governments to decide what is in the best interest of their communities, to a point. And that's where the legal battle comes in because you can point to a number of court decisions where the state of Wisconsin had ultimate authority and they won in court saying this is our ultimate authority. Now the other side of that too is that we have a bunch of folks uh, from liberal causes and, and social causes saying this is all about home rule. Of course, you didn't hear the chorus of their opposition uh, about home rule when we had things like Obamacare and national mandates uh, subverting state rights and all of these sorts of things. So it, it kind of, home rule kind of depends on, you know, <laughs> well, we got, talked about this before, it kind of depends on your point of view. I, I, got, a, I got even more specific of an example. We got to reach back a little ways, yeah. but uh, the smoking ban in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Well, the the, the yeah. primary reason why we needed a, unif we needed a uniform uh, statute for the entire state because otherwise that bar that's just on the on the outskirts of town is going to get all the business and all the bars in town are going to suffer right. if you had a smoking ban. So it needed to be uniform throughout the whole state. Oh, that's <laughs> a really good point. And that was a liberal point of view, wasn't it? So home rule wasn't so important then. But it, when it comes to living wages and labor agreements and all of these sorts of things, now home rule is very important. Well, home rule is a fine concept, and you you mentioned sure doing what's best for your communities. Yeah. But is the you know is putting these really impossible to meet burdens on employers best for your communities? I mean, it's some of these things sound good in concept. One of the, the well, if they want, I mean, if they want to do certain things, I suppose you can make the argument. And if you just think about it on the surface level, yeah, that's a home rule situation. But it's not because that ultimately impacts everybody across the state. This is employment law. It's not, you know, we think that there should be, um, you know, restaurants with drive-throughs in our city. You know, I mean, that's not that's not that far-fetched to say that. I know, but <laughs> One of you the... know, I, I, you know, I, I, all kinds of different weird local things. You know, that said, there there are categories of law that are universal. And the argument is that employment law, particularly certain areas of employment law, like labor law, should apply in the same law should apply in Milwaukee as do in La Crosse, as do in Eau Claire or Platteville or wherever in the state. Well, and you had, you had human resources professionals say, explaining why it's such a burden on them. And, and I, I can relate a little bit because I got my degree in HR and I understand employment law fairly well. One of the things uh, that 
that really put the bill into focus for me was when the restaurant guys got up the I think the Wisconsin Restaurant Association I think is who they were yeah uh, were they representing and it really put because I have got years of experience working in restaurants they cited laws in like the Twin Cities that are in other states that require restaurants and you know seasonal businesses and you know golf courses and all these sort of things to post their schedules four weeks in advance and and pay you know fifteen dollars an hour and all that sort of thing um, and this is an industry in particular that has a three percent average profit margin so these rules might sound nice when you when you sit around on the city council uh, and you go, you know, maybe you're a lawyer or something, but when you actually get into these industries and realize the realities of these industries, those are impossible to comply with. It's the unintended consequences that they never think about and somehow never anticipate, but it's the same thing over and over again. If your idea is to make life better for employees by giving, you know, certitude in scheduling, of lifting artificially by government uh, uh, mandate, by lifting incomes, and then you end up closing down 20% of your businesses. How have you helped? How have you helped? You made it worse. You, you made it, you made it worse. And, and then, here's another <laughs> example. Bureaucrats twiddling their thumbs trying to figure out how to arrange everyone's lives. Yes. Just exactly. So, come on. Making it worse. The unintended consequences is, uh, always amaze me. Real quick, there was an article, I think it was in Reason or something like that, a while back about the impact of the $15 minimum wage in the Twin Cities that said, you know, the mid-range sit-down dining restaurant days are going to be over. You're going to be, it's either Chipotle where you stand in line in a cafeteria type of thing, or you have to be rich and be able to drop $300 on a super fine sit-down restaurant. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like my Applebee's, all right? <laughs> All right, so you want your baby back? <laughs> All right, so so that's just a taste so far of what's going on in the oh, Capitol. Oh, very well done, nice sir. Very well like done. But there's a lot going through committee right now. But we're just going to talk about one more bill, and this one is kind of like a combo, like a twofer between education and crime <laughs> prevention. So last week, an assembly committee held a public hearing on a bill that would protect teachers against violent students. Now, Ola, give us a lowdown on this one. That's right. Thanks, Billy. Uh, so this conversation was really started by Dan O'Donnell of WISN when he released his report in 2016 titled Blood on the Blackboard, Violence Against Teachers in Milwaukee Public Schools. Now, in putting together this research, Dan interviewed several dozen current and former teachers and employees at MPS. And in his report, he shares those stories of shocking violence in our schools. And one thing they have in common is most of the time, nothing happens as a result. One teacher, for example, had her foot slammed in a door by a student that mm. broke her foot. Uh, in another instance, a school security officer was literally choked by a student using that security guard's own lanyard, at which point someone placed a 911 call, which was then canceled by the school's principal. There, yeah, there are many other instances that Dan talks about in his report, and these violent outbursts are pretty much swept under the rug by administrators and other school officials who don't want that kind of negative attention on their school. And these teachers, ultimately, they feel powerless. And unfortunately, according to many of these accounts, the problem is getting worse. 
kids aren't disciplined for this and they know that they can keep acting this way, so they do. So the bill, which was introduced by Representative Jeremy Thiesfeld of Fond du Lac, would do a couple different things. It would allow teachers to remove a violent student from their classroom for two consecutive days without suspending them, uh, creating a quote-unquote cool-down period for that student. Teachers would also be able to receive leave benefits um, or terminate their contracts without penalty if they're assaulted in the workplace. They would also be able to get information about which students have had felonies or violent misdemeanors in the past, which is information that they're not allowed to access right now. Uh, they would also have more say over potential suspensions of students. Now, we were there at the public hearing last Thursday, and not only did Dan O'Donnell testify in favor of the bill, but he came back to our offices afterwards and sat down with us to talk about it. Let's go to that. You were there to testify on the teacher protection bill. Obviously, there's a problem. Could you describe the problem that needed a solution? Well, quite simply, it's, it's violence against teachers and other students in classrooms, especially in large urban school districts like Milwaukee. This legislation was pretty much prompted by a report I did called Blood on the Blackboard, Violence Against Teachers in Milwaukee Public Schools. That was nearly two years ago, where dozens of teachers said that they were not only attacked, but completely ignored when they tried to bring these concerns before their school administrators. And at the same time, you've had a push towards less discipline in schools, which has fostered this in environment of chaos. And so you had teachers coming to me as almost a last resort to tell their stories in the hopes that somebody would finally take them seriously. And why would the administrators not do anything? What were the reasons for that? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know definitively because they never responded to my reporting. Uh, they made vague references to it, I guess, but if I were to venture a guess, it would be because at about the same time that MPS was cutting by a third the number of students it was suspending, year over year it was suspending fewer students, the federal government under President Obama sent a dear colleague letter to schools and school districts from the Department of Justice and the Department of Education, basically saying that even if your policy, say, if a student punches another student, they will be suspended, even if that is totally neutral, it isn't in any way discriminatory. If it has what's known as a disparate impact on, say, African-American students, it will be considered to be a problem and almost discriminatory in nature. So what school districts, and I believe MPS did, to get into line with that was simply not suspend students anymore. And teachers were telling me that they would have a student, they would get referred to the office, this student, for say slamming a door. I had one slamming a door in a teacher's broken foot. This guy was hobbling around in a cast, and a teacher, wham, a student slammed the door in his face, and nothing happened. There was no suspension. I mean, what reasonable person would think that behavior is not worthy of a suspension, if not an outright expulsion? But it didn't happen. And my theory, my working theory, and I believe it's supported by the evidence, is that they didn't want to deal with a lawsuit from the federal government. They didn't want to deal with decreased funding from the federal government. And they didn't want to deal with the stigma of being called a racist school district. I mean, would you? Nobody, nobody would want that. So it was this unintended consequence of a federal policy that was just disastrous because it, it, it fomented this 
culture of lawlessness in schools where, where teachers and administrators were scared to discipline students because, oh, if your percentages were a little too high, if this had a disparate impact, the federal government would crack down on you. You're, you're some principal of some smaller mid-level school you you really are you're going to you're going to risk getting the federal government <laughs> upset with you and the federal government actually did start an investigation in Milwaukee i mean my goodness you you talk about pressure to conform so what happened was even if teachers wanted to suspend even if they said okay we need to suspend districts and and individual school administrators just weren't because they didn't want to deal with it so what is the state willing to do about it now well, what the state, what uh, Representative Jerry, Jeremy Thiesfeld, Thiesfeld, I should say, is, is doing is taking a proactive approach and basically empowering teachers at the classroom level to be able to go above the head of a school administrator that they feel is not adequately protecting them. That if they're attacked, they can then go to the president of their school board and say, look, I need you to review this incident. I need you to basically say this is something that we need a second pair of eyes on. More importantly, what it does is it allows teachers to not feel trapped by their own administrators in that they have another place to go. Moreover, it allows them, if they're attacked and they want to break their contract, they're allowed to without paying a $2,000 penalty or whatever it is. That's what it is in Milwaukee. And one teacher I spoke with actually did have that. She got uh, her foot slammed in a door by, I think, a second grader, a first or a second grader. And she said, I can't deal with this anymore. She left. She left the teaching profession. A few months later, she gets a bill for $2,000 for breaking her contract. You talk about insult to literal injury. That would be it. So what this does is allows teachers to not have to pay that penalty anymore, too. It also uh, forces DPI to publicize the, the teacher bill of rights so that they know what their rights are. And it basically is just a, a package of uh, bills, uh, basically under one bill, I guess, a package of tenets of this bill that give teachers more power when they're dealing with out-of-control students. Sounds all very common sense, but you're facing, and uh, uh, representatives facing a lot of opposition. Yes. Yeah. Who, who could be against this and why? Well, the, the strongest op, uh, opposition is coming from disability rights advocates, and they're claiming that this would basically discriminate against, once again, they're, they're operating on a theory of disparate impact, that even though there's nothing that says anything about disabled students, that because disabled students, and it's interesting, because when they say disabled, they also include in that EBD, emotionally or behaviorally disturbed. Now that's not a student, everybody would say a student who's disabled, you're obviously mentally ill when you're EBD, but there's a difference between a student who doesn't know the difference between right or wrong. Say some, a student who's severely autistic and can't help but, but lash out sometimes violently if there's something that goes wrong. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But an EBD student is a student who is just, well, disturbed emotionally or behaviorally. They're lumped into that same category, yet if they still understand the difference between right and wrong, well, there should still be consequences. There still should be discipline. So the disability rights groups are saying that, well, this legislation 
is going to have a disparate impact on these disabled students. Well, the, the counter to that is these students still have what's known as an IEP, an Individualized Education Plan, which means there is an entire committee of teachers and psychologists and, and, and speech language professionals that'll come in and have to like talk with the, the board that wants to suspend them. This doesn't change that. They're also offered the protections of the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, the IDEAS Act, Individuals with Disability in Education, and a section of the Rehabilitation Act also deals with this. So they're still offered federal protections. And one of the uh, disability rights groups actually said, no, this bill, the Teacher Protection Act, doesn't come into conflict with the federal ADA. He was forced to admit that. So it's like, it's almost as though they're, I don't want to say they're ignoring the federal law that already protects disabled students, but they're conveniently forgetting about it as they're saying that this is going to be so detrimental to disabled students. And certainly, don't, don't get me wrong, as this bill goes through the process, that certainly deserves further study. Like, how exactly do we differentiate between, say, an EBD student and a student with autism, right? But for purposes of this law. But as I understand the law, what it does is is primarily give the teacher who knows the student best more power to determine what should happen to that student. That's that's my understanding of it anyway. So this bill is getting a lot of attention. We're kind of nearing the end of the legislative season. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what what's going to happen with this bill? I, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. I, I would love to see it passed. Um, I certainly think it'll get out of committee since uh, it seems as though the committee was very responsive to it. It was in judiciary as opposed to education. Um, I believe it gets out of committee. I'm not sure if it'll be scheduled uh, for a floor vote. I'm hopeful. I would have to talk to Representative Thiesfeld, what he's hearing about this. Uh, but we'll see, you know, uh, if not if not this session, then then maybe in, in 2019. So Dan obviously goes into a great detail with that, but I mean, he really kind of outlines, you know, how bad this problem is and, right. you know, why this has really grabbed his attention. Right. Right. And Ola, you talk about it being swept under the rug. I mean, I, it, what amazes me is how liberals are able to contort themselves into a pretzel to oppose this. I mean, we've heard about what this legislation's going to do. It doesn't sound like it's anything extreme. But some people are still finding ways to oppose this. You know, you, yeah, you want to talk about jumping through hoops. It's kind of like, oh, but, you know, what if the moon is lined up and we've got, you know, this one situation where this one kid came from this one type. I mean, here you have a real documented problem and you're, they're coming up with these insane hypotheticals. Of, and it's a serious yeah. people problem, too. Yeah. People are getting, I mean, my mom's a teacher, so this is kind of a little bit of a concern for me personally. Well, this is what, this is what I don't understand. Uh, remember 2011. You'll never forget 2011. You'll remember the teachers who showed up along with the union members on the, the Capitol steps and, you know, protested for weeks on end. And it was all about, you know, uh, educators' rights. It was all about protecting teachers <laughs> until now. Right. This is a bill that is doing all that it can to protect the safety of teachers yeah. in the classroom. Well, we talked right. about employment law a little earlier. Safe workplace 
employment. I mean, and now suddenly protecting teachers is just some sort of uh, right-wing conspiracy idea. Just just remember, Representative Chris Taylor is leading the charge to deny teachers these protections. These basic protections. She basically told Dan on the stand that his report was completely fake and falsified, and that's why MPS didn't respond to it. I mean, it was, you know, what a message to send to those teachers who confided in him anonymously because they're scared. It's terrible. We we know that the people who listen to the testimony know the uh, you know the impact of, of violence in the classroom and the many teachers who reached out to Dan O'Donnell, many many teachers who reached out to Dan O'Donnell know it. What's important though is that other teachers around the state know it and step up right. and say, "Hey, we may not agree with all the policies in place in Wisconsin. Here's something we can agree on, that children should be safe in the classroom and teachers should be safe in the classroom, too. But you see, you, you open, the, the, you open the, uh, the, the, the genie's bottle, you know, talking about 2011. So one of the big <laughs> things that I remember was, you know, all these supposed worker rights that, you know, were really privileges, but, you know, they were characterizing as rights. Mm-hmm. Well. I would say workers do have the right to not get beaten up at work. That is a right. That is not a privilege, that is a right. I I don't think anybody disagrees with that except for a very select few. Except for Chris Taylor, apparently. Far, far left. Yes. And and that's what we've seen. I mean, over and over again, again, it's a broader issue here. But, you know, we have people in running for governor. Um, from the Democratic Party, who are rooting against Foxconn, who say they would they would sue they would Foxconn sue as their first Foxconn. order of business as governor, the the company that wants to bring thirteen thousand jobs. That was that was Matt Flynn, by the way, who tweeted that. First thing is going to be to press litigation against Foxconn. And in, and in this case, we have we have lawmakers on the left who have said that they are committed to the rights of teachers, and now. They can't even stand up for teachers who are being beaten up in class. Pretty remarkable. Uh, So moving uh, forward, quick week ahead to wrap up. Big week in Wisconsin politics this week. And in fact, at this very moment, as we're recording this podcast, the good folks of the 10th Senate District are voting in that special election. And the Wisconsin Assembly is preparing for its first floor session of the year. So make sure to tune in next week to hear what we think about the results of that election, the results of the lengthy floor session today, uh, et cetera. And we'll what, see do you, what do you think about all of this sort of stuff? By all means, reach out to us at MacGyverInstitute.com. We want to hear from you, your thoughts on all of these big policy issues now before the legislature and the policy issues affecting our country. That's right. And uh, just a reminder, you can find the MacGyver Report on any of your favorite podcast apps. That includes SoundCloud, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes, and you can find links to all of them on our website, MacGyverInstitute.com. Very good. And if uh, our listeners, our faithful listeners in podcast land do want to reach us, how can they reach us uh, in in terms of sharing their ideas? Well, there's any number of ways. We're on Twitter at MacGyverWiss. You can email info at MacGyverInstitute.com. Find any of us. Uh, if you have a particular gripe or suggestion for any of us, you can find us on the website. We're on Facebook. Uh, leave us a comment. I mean, we're nothing if not there for you and available. We are accessible <laughs> and unfortunately we are out of time. Until we talk again next week, it's the MacGyver team saying so long, goodbye, God bless. See you next week.